Hello and welcome to Leave Your Mark. I'm your host, Scott Linkson, and this is where I explore the influences that have shaped the lives of our incredible guests. These are the stories of lives we're talking about. Follow me on Twitter, Live by Scott, and Instagram at KingOKing, or link up with me on my Facebook fan page, Scott G. Livingston. My goal is to empower and inspire the community of people to take every opportunity to live a high-performing life. Before I get started on today's podcast, I want to take a moment to connect you with my sponsor, ReconditioningHQ.com. If you're a therapist of any kind listening today, have you ever found yourself wondering why your patient's issue is not resolving or why it keeps coming back? If you're someone who helps people achieve their health, fitness, or performance goals, have you ever struggled with their pain getting in the way of success or wondered why they keep reaching plateaus they can't overcome? Or maybe if you're in either of these worlds, you view the other world as uncomfortable territory, a space where your abilities end and your need to trust is challenged. Reconditioning is the place where these worlds intersect, the place where each world becomes tangible and familiar, where misunderstanding and fear of the wrong move are replaced with confidence and creativity. The reconditioning process is powerful. It's provocative, and it has become a sought-after capacity in the human performance world. In the first week of September, ReconditioningHQ.com releases the R-Pro series, a four-step turnkey process to integrating the worlds of therapy and performance. Four steps, one mission, to make you the reconditioning professional everyone wants to work with. For more information about the R-Pro series or any one of our empowering courses, head over to ReconditioningHQ.com and use the coupon code RPRO2021 to get $50 off any one of our products and take advantage of our free 5 hours video that takes you through our groundbreaking method of improving mobility. I'm excited to have my friend Brad Thorpe and his company Isofit involved with the Leave Your Mark podcast. His mission is the same as mine, helping human beings live better lives. He doesn't want to see you let an injury force your retirement from the sport or activity you love. For decades, physiotherapists, athletic therapists, and chiropractors have recommended isometric strength training to help speed up rehabilitation from injury and included it in return to sport protocols. I know I use it often in my own reconditioning process. Whether you're goal is performance enhancement, injury prevention, or injury recovery, the all-new Isofit MSK takes athletes from the therapy room to the podium. To learn more, visit www.isofit, that's isofit with a P-H-I-T-M-S-K.ca, and remember to use the discount code Leave Your Mark. three separate words to save $500 off your Isofit MSK purchase. I want to thank Greg Lawler and Matrix Fitness for being a long-standing sponsor of the Leave Your Mark podcast. Matrix is indeed leaving a mark on the fitness and performance industry today. In the last 20 years, Matrix has become a global brand that employs over 7,000 people worldwide and delivers over 500 products catering to the medical, fitness, and athletic performance markets. Matrix has a wide range of programming solutions, and they are dedicated to creating deeper partnerships with their customers everywhere. Matrix has many ways of making a relationship work for you, the customer, and offers rental and various financial incentives to assist the financial constraints of adding premium equipment during this time of inconsistent revenue. For more information and free consultation, go to teamupwithmatrix.com forward slash CA. That's teamupwithmatrix.com forward slash CA today. 
Hello and welcome to Leave Your Mark. I'm your host, Scott Livingston, and today I have the pleasure of speaking with Ryan Hamilton. Ryan is an associate professor in the Department of Psychology at UNB and has won awards both as a teacher and researcher. While Ryan applies the findings of his research in a variety of groups, including cancer survivors and exercisers, he is most well known for his work in sport. Ryan serves as a mental performance coach with the Canadian Sports Centre, UNB Varsity Reds, Hockey Canada, and the Tampa Bay Lightning. In 2020, Ryan served as the mental performance coach for the gold medal winning world junior hockey team in the Czech Republic and the Stanley Cup winning lightning in the bubble. Indeed, with the Stanley Cup win this past July, Ryan has been a part of two world junior junior champions and two Stanley Cup championships. Finally, earlier this month, Ryan was named as the mental performance coach for Canada's Olympic men's hockey team, who will be competing at the 2022 Olympics in Beijing, China. Ryan is a proud UNB employee, UNB alumni, and New Brunswicker. I'm happy to have him on the show today. Welcome, Ryan. Thanks so much for having me. Uh, It's a pleasure to be with you. Yeah, well, uh, you uh, came to my attention through a friend of mine, Pat McGee, who uh, who I've sort of mentored, I guess, in some sense, and he talked about his his mentorship under yourself, and he felt the two of us should meet one another, which is uh, it's nice to do it on this podcast. So thanks for taking the time today. Absolutely. Tell me, um, Ryan. You know, I like to start with where people came from. So you're a proud New Brunswicker. You you grow up in New Brunswick. Uh, so what is early life like for you? Obviously, there's a hockey thematic in your background. Were you a hockey player as a kid or a hockey maniac? And what did you really dream of being when you're a little boy? Well, it's, I so I grew up in uh, I grew up in a town called Plaster Rock, New Brunswick. Uh, it's a uh, there are a lot of these towns, I think, dotted across Canada, uh, these small lumber communities. So it was a town of 1,200 people. And, uh, you know, that's those are my roots. And I was just there uh, yesterday, and it was nice to get back. I don't get back there very often anymore. But, you know, it doesn't, on its surface, it doesn't look like the land of opportunity. Like, mm. people ask me what sports I played uh, when I was growing up there weren't a lot of options. Like indeed we didn't have a soccer pitch until after I was gone. Hmm. Um, But there was a rich baseball community and uh, I played volleyball and it was one of those things I think growing up where, um, you know, you didn't have to have a lot of athletic ability to be on a team. Essentially you just had to be able to put on a shirt (laughs) and, uh, and, and you were on the team. So I got exposed to a lot of different sports because of that. And, um, you know, I was a competitive baseball player and volleyball player, um, but really there wasn't ever ever a lot of runway to it. Mm -hmm. Um, But I was a passionate, passionate sports fan. Hockey is, I I guess I've become known for my work in hockey, but I was never necessarily focused on having a having a career connected to hockey, but the idea of having a career connected to sports um, was something that, that I was interested in. It just seemed far fetched. I didn't really know what it was. Um, I was the first to, to head off to university in my family, my parents, my dad worked in the lumber mill his entire life. My mom was a licensed practical nurse. They didn't really, there wasn't an academic role model, I guess, for me to follow. So I was just kind of nerdy. I did kind of well in, in school and I went off to university to, to see what would happen. I think the early days of my life are important. I didn't recognize it now. Then I recognize it now in terms of ethics of, 
of humility, I think, mm-hmm. established by my parents and and being from a small town. Obviously, a work ethic um, that that my parents embodied and my extended family embodied. Um, and it wasn't like, geez, you have to work hard to reach your potential. It was, geez, you have to work hard to survive mm-hmm. in, in many ways. And then I think the other thing, interestingly, that complements my work today is is storytelling. Mm. And uh, I remember being a kid around the table and my parents are playing cribbage with the neighbors or they're sitting around a a fire pit in the back in the backyard and uh and that 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 storytelling you know people would take five minutes to talk about their drive into town and back (laughs) and uh and it would be colorful and interesting and and I think I picked some of those things up Mm. so you know, I have this connection to hockey and, and academia that that I wouldn't say started in my youth growing up, but uh, but there's much from my youth that I think uh, appear in my life today. So, what was what was the influential driver for the academic card? Since you're coming sort of from a blue collar town with a blue blue collar parents, so to speak, um, what was not influencing you to? end up working like your dad in the lumber mill and instead deciding you're going to go to school. Did your parents push you to go there or did you sort of, it's just something that lit inside you? Uh, so I love to write um, mm. when I was probably late middle school, early years of high school. I love to love creative writing, poetry, screenplays, short stories. Mm. I, I wrote a lot. And I had teachers who saw that in me and were really sort of pushed me along and and uh, got me to do extra in that. And I guess I just started to see a career for myself that that was different, not not better, um, but different than what I was seeing other people do hmm. um, in my hometown. And, and there were people from my hometown who were who were off different places and pursuing different things. And, and that seemed interesting. And so I got, got really good marks, probably could have been better marks, but I got really good marks and uh, I had varied interests and, and going to school just seemed like a good fit. And interestingly, I went, I went, and, and so when I went to school, I, I wasn't going to become a sports psychologist. I was mm. going to, to get a degree, but I thought maybe I could be an English professor one day. Hmm. And um, and so I take all my introductory courses when I get to UMB, and I remember I wrote this paper, and I and I got so much positive feedback as I in high school about my writing and my critical thinking around writing, and it was just an area of competence, and so I was really motivated about it. You know, the self determination theory comes into play here, and uh, I remember writing this uh, the this synopsis of the love song of J. Alfred Prufrock by T.S. Eliot. And uh, all the Eliots in Plasterot spelled their name, uh, their last name with two L's. And so I spelled T.S. Eliot with two L's in this paper. And the, the, after the, the first or second line of this paper that I got back, and I was excited to get work back. I always was excited to get my English work back in high school. There was just a red line drawn across it. And um, there was a note over on the other side, the back side of the cover page that said, if you can't take the time to spell the author's name correctly, I can't take the time to read your paper. Wow. 
And and <laughs> that was a, a rude awakening uh, for sure. And it, but it did sour me a little bit on on the pursuit of English. And um, I still love to write, but I became a little bit more self conscious about my writing and my work, and and I sort of became open to other ideas uh, of what I might do. And so I lived in a residence building, um, and we had a Don, the uh, house Don, as, as the position was known, uh, was, a, was a basketball player uh, at UMB, but he moved on. And the second year that I lived in this residence, we had a Don, a gentleman from Northern Ireland, um, who had done all of his schooling at the University of Victoria, and just so happened to be the sports psychologist for the Philadelphia Flyers, uh, okay. Dr. David Scott. And, uh, and Dr. Scott and I, um, formed a relationship and he, I think as, as our couple years in residence sort of took on a life of their own and, and we became acquainted with each other, he kind of pushed me to say, Hey, you know, you could do an honors degree in sports psychology. And I just still didn't, at the time, I didn't think it was going to be an actual career. I didn't think it was something I could do. But I was like, yeah, I, I could see myself as maybe being a child psychologist someday. Um, but I kind of got hooked on the sports stuff. And now I saw my my passions, my interests, sport in all of its forms. Like, I, I, I'm a sport junkie. Like, name the sport. <laughs> I, I'm into it. And then this academic thing was starting to come come together and coalesce. So it set me on a path, I think, um, at, at that point in time. So as you started, so I guess you changed majors in the school and started going into the psych, psychology work or education. Mm -hmm. Was there an element of it that you found um, challenging in essence that, you know, obviously you're coming at it from no sort of prior understanding of what it is that you're getting into. So what did you find difficult about it and what did you find easy about it in some sense? Hmm. I guess what I found easy about it was that I, I guess I, I wasn't aware that I was as interested in human behavior as I actually was. Mm. And when, 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 and so psychology, I always thought of, you know, it was about the brain and what the brain does. And, and surely there's all sorts of elements of psychology that are about, you know, the neurophysiology of the brain. And, and I'm actually backfilling a lot of my training with, with that type of uh, education now. Um, but it's, but it was when it was positioned as well, psychology, actually the science of behavior, mm. like it's, it's how and why we do what we do. And, and I, it just sort of things stuck with me. Like I could go back home and talk to my parents about, Various things, and they, they they thought me very judgy uh, <laughs> in the early years. But I'd be like, "Mom, when you parented, like when you were when you used to say all this, like no wonder I'm afraid of water. Like it was because of this and this and this." And um, but I, I guess I I could see psychology everywhere once mm. it started to be put to me in those types of social terms and and developmental terms and then the performance side and the stress side i got i got kind of interested in that um but there were elements of it that i that i wasn't particularly good at um 
you know, I found some of the uh, the biology, the, the 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 biological side of psych to be a bit of a challenge, and so I shied away from it. Mm. Uh, to be fair, and I found some of the statistics and research stuff uh, to be a challenge, and um, and it really jeopardized my my academics because. I almost didn't get accepted to an honors because I did so poorly in some of these classes that they, they were an anchor. Mm. And so even while I was fighting my way to get into the honors program, there was a lot of doubt about whether or not I was going to get into honors and then whether or not I, I would get into graduate school after the fact. Um, so I found some of the courses in some of the areas difficult. And so, and I think, I think I shied away from those areas as I continued in my career through my graduate training, and I really doubled down on the cognitive behavioral side of things at the expense of diving into more of those uh, neurophysical uh, type of things that, that I've become interested in the last couple of years. Mm. I'm curious as to, well, obviously you've become a professor, and so that is one sort of balancing act around the, call it the income equation. But I think when, I, when I've talked to a lot of um, sports psychologists over the years, uh, one of the challenging elements of becoming a sports psychologist is that it's it's a harder sort of platform to earn a, a living in, some, so to speak. So what what did you see as kind of the opportunity equation there, and, and did you ever doubt it in the sense that, you know, was it better just to get into clinical psychology and not do that because that was going to be a bit of an uphill battle? So how did you fight that battle, so to speak? That's a, that's a really good question. Um, I, I guess in some ways the financial piece of it, and would I have a career that that was sort of self-sustaining as a mental performance coach or sports psychologist or or, or what have you, that wasn't of chief concern. I wanted to do the work. Like I wanted to be on a team and it didn't matter to me if it was a junior curling team. Um, and I've had wonderful experiences with curlers um, because of those roots, or it didn't matter if it was the 11 U gymnasts or if it was a, a, a minor Bantam hockey club or what, whatever. I was just hungry to do that work. And, and once I started my master's training, my supervisor was very well connected in the area and had lots of people asking him to do things that he just couldn't do. And I find myself in this position now. And so I was given these opportunities. And so the calculus of what am I building a brand or am I building a business? No, like I just wanted the middle middle school basketball team to win against a crosstown rival on Saturday. And then like, like, that's what I was into and how can I help that? And, and I was willing, somehow I was willing to take these risks and, and, and try different strategies. I was just trying to do great work. And I remember uh, a gentleman, a speed skating coach by the name of Peter Steele, who's a farmer down in Sussex, New Brunswick, and he was coaching the, the Canada Games speed skating team. And he had me come in and speak. And at the end, he said, here's an honorarium for you. And I had no idea what the word honorarium meant. Like, but he handed me an envelope. And then the envelope was $50. And I could, I, so this was the first time I'd ever been paid to do work. And I had been doing work now for a couple of years and couldn't believe it. Like, I'm getting paid to do this. All the while, I'm chugging away at my training and I'm going through 
you know, the, 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 the academics that I need to do. And I'm doing my master's thesis on self-talk and cyclists. And uh, I'm figuring out if I'm going to do a PhD or not. And, and I actually applied to do my PhD really, really late. And so I went into a PhD without funding. But every summer I had been planting trees or I'd been uh, working in the in the lumber mill. I was saved, or I wasn't saving money, but I was earning money. And I, then I started to take on research jobs at the hospital. And so part of my CV has all of this research and 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 funding in the area of cancer survivorship and and um, and coping skills within cancer survivors. And that's a product of of these research jobs that I was taking. And I thought I might have to do for for my whole entire life. Um, to, to sustain a family, but also to sustain this career that I was trying to build. And so I was taking on managerial consulting jobs later in my graduate training. And, you know, I, mm-hmm. people, people kept saying, do you want to do this? And I kept saying yes. And then people started to say, we'll pay you to do this. And I just kept saying, great. And, and, and this sounds like a very conceited thing to say, but I've never, I've never applied for a job in sport in the realm of sports psychology. Mm. It's been a matter of having people approach me, asking me to do something, me saying yes, and and those connections, be getting more connections, and mm. uh, so, and and now I, I probably do have a self sustaining consulting career if I wanted to pursue it, but I. Um, I, I love being a professor, and I think being a professor makes me a far better uh, consultant. So I love that story because I, I think for the listener, just hearing the passion that exudes from your words is the key to you know being in something that you love. You know, you'll you'll never work a day in your life, is the old saying, as they say. Yeah. So I'm wondering, um, you know, when you you're sort of I, I would call sort of a second generation of what. Uh, Canada has had some some real pioneers in the industry, the Peter Jensen's, the Wayne Halliwell's, the Penny Werthner's, the Cal mm-hmm. Botterill's, and we just lost one the other day, yeah. Terry Orlick, unfortunately. Mm-hmm. Um, talk about those people as influences in your career and, and sort of beacons for maybe what you wanted to create and, and, and do. Yeah. Um, yeah, so there's, I mean, you've hit on a lot of the... Uh, a lot of the the key people in our field that have really established the discipline in the country, but also in the continent and, and, you know, internationally as well. And, and I think when, when you talk about uh, Penny and, and, and Peter and, and Wayne and and Cal Botterill and, and so, and David Scott. And when we start mentioning these people, I think what they've done is, there was always this was a fringy thing and, mm-hmm. and and different people would pick it up or different organizations would pick it up. But I think those people really established the credibility of sports psychology as a performance enhancing discipline. 
that's grounded in the in the science practitioner model mm. and you know a lot of those people are not just great practitioners they're also phenomenal researchers as well and so then when you start to think about the research side i i would include people like jean cote and and joe baker and um todd loheed and and so those guys are, are a bit more contemporary to me um but I start to put that, those people together and we've really established sports psychology as a, as a science, as a respected discipline. And, um, and, and that, that work serves as a, as foundational. Um, so, you know, I think I was, I got, so I was very active on the conference scene and the sports psychology conferencing throughout my training. And then one of the things that happened is, because I was doing this work in cancer and I was trying to establish myself as an academic and suddenly the work that I was involved in was becoming funded, my conference participation went, went into psycho-oncology. So I was going to international psycho-oncology conferences and, and, and I was always trying to pull my worlds together. And so, you know, indeed it culminated in work where I was, training cancer survivors uh, in learn-to-run programs, culminating in a race uh, where I taught them psychological skills for for running, but running was really a, a proxy and a metaphor for going through their cancer survivorship journey. So I was, over time, I was able to put these worlds together. But I guess what I'm saying is I, I sort of fell out of that world Mm. Uh, the, the mental performance sports psychology world and, and my my research work just went differently um and so some of those those mentors um not that I lost touch with them but I I ended up doing my sports I was I didn't have time to be in that academic field as much and and I was busy I was in that cancer academic field and then I was busy doing sports psych work because it was picking up so I was doing a lot of applied work and and a lot of it really just on my own and in some cases with, with Dr. Scott here and then um, and then I got involved with Hockey Canada about five years ago and Peter uh, Peter was there and it was the first time in, in a few years where I really had had mentorship in, in sports psychology and, and really got to watch other people work. And, um, and then, I don't know, it was a bit of a rebirth of, of and a reformulation of how I work. So Peter became really, really important. And now I have colleagues that, that have been pulled into Hockey Canada, uh, Ashwin Patel and Luke Medill. And, and those guys, uh, I, you know, I learned from working alongside them. And I guess I'm in the mentor role um, since they've come into Hockey Canada, but I'm really learning a, a tremendous amount from them. So um, we do have these pioneers in the field in Canada who have have paved a way for me, not so much in everybody, let's get you to meet Ryan because he's doing great work too. But I think the, the pioneering work they've done is they've just brought, because of the quality with which they work, they brought such credibility to the discipline that more and more people are open to what I'm doing um, mm. And not just seeing it as as hocus pocus as it may have been viewed, you know, thirty or forty years ago. Yeah, that's. Um, I'm going to unpack that in a couple seconds because I, I think that's a, a huge space to go into. But I just wanted to ask the question based on the fact that you talked about your work in oncology. Uh, um, 
How did that, how does that, how has that informed your sports performance, mental preparation work? Like what have you learned from dealing with people who are fighting cancer, dealing with cancer, maybe, maybe dealing with the, the end of their life? Uh, how has that informed the work that you do in sport performance? Yeah, a few ways. Um, and none that I've really thought about before, but now that you brought it up, it makes me, it makes me think about it. We, we once did a study on, um, on parents who have children with cancer. And um, a part of my job was to travel throughout New Brunswick and interview these families. And, um, and uh, I, wasn't, uh, I wasn't a parent at the time. Um, I was an outsider to this kind of conversation and, uh, geez, did I learn how to sit and listen and be present in difficult emotions and difficult realities and, uh, and, and really try to build trust and learn ways to build trust and to just hear people out. And, um, so I think, there's some of those interviewing skills and I, and I interviewed a lot of young adults who had had cancer about their trajectories and their journeys and how they make sense of the world. And when I see how, um, and it was amazing. We had one gentleman who participated, who was also an elite hockey player and how he drew on the metaphor of hockey to inform his cancer journey. And then there was a, a young uh, gentleman I interviewed who's maybe 20, who's really into dun- Dungeons and Dragons. And he used that metaphor to inform his cancer journey. And then I started to see this in reverse about how people who are going through traumatic times, um, you know, how they draw on different things and who they draw on, what those mental skills look like and how they practice them. So I, I learned so much about sort of the raw, the, the rawness of coping um, when it's life or death. And I was in different literature. I was in the, the coping and hope literature. I was in end of life and palliative care literature. Um, so I was exposed to those different types of things. And then even things around post-traumatic growth. And so it just brought a different lens to my sports psychology work that I think people who are only in the sports like field and sports like literature maybe didn't have don't have access to without really going out and seeking it i was i was in it and it's one of the great things about teaching intro psychology is one day i'm talking about relationships um and romantic relationships we do a romantic relationships uh unit around valentine's day every winter and then i started to think about well relationships on sports teams and then what about relationships to one's goals uh, how is that possible how could i possibly extrapolate that so getting those extra doses i think have been really really useful and i think the last thing is i'm an outsider as an athlete um i'm not one and i work with athletes uh, I'm an outsider in hockey. I didn't play hockey growing up. Um, I'm an outsider when I work with cancer survivors. And I'm even an outsider when I join a lot of organizations because, you know, there are certain things that are ingrained in teams for decades. And then there's sports psychology, which isn't. And I guess working with cancer survivors and cancer survi- and families of cancer survivors and, and also families who have lost loved ones to cancer 
I also learned more about being an outsider and then finding a way to be a meaningful resource still in those contexts. So, you know, cancer survivors like coaches have told me that they like the fact that I'm outside of it, that I don't have an opinion on it, that I don't have my own. uh, Have you ever thought about doing this on the forecheck or have you ever thought about doing this? You know, when you're going to for your uh, radiation therapy, they like the fact that, that they have a lot to teach me too. So I think, again, it's somewhat indirect, but, um, but it's, it's sort of completed a picture for me of, of how I work. I, I like that a lot. I like to sort of dive into that a little bit more for the listener is how do you find a point of embarkation in a relationship with somebody so that even though maybe you are an outsider, you don't have that uh, call it the technical connection with a hockey player, you make a, a spiritual or life connection with them that they want to, you know, confide in you about what's going on or, you know, what, what they're dealing with or what they need from you. Cause you're, you're in the ultimate trust relationship at the end of the day. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, so a couple things come to mind. I think one of the things, and I think I struggle with this, I'd say early in my career, but I think I would also say I struggle with this early in my relationships with, you know, with Hockey Canada or with the Tampa Bay Lightning and sort of the stakes have have risen, is this balance between being relevant and feeling relevant. Mm -hmm. And I think at times in my career when I've been wrong, I've been chasing a feeling of relevance. I need to feel like I'm making an impact to this coach. I need to feel like I'm making an impact to this player. I need to feel like I went to the, to the rink today. Who, who benefited from my presence? I had to make sure that I, and I think, I feel like I chased that early on. Mm -hmm. And I think with maturity and, yeah, mostly with maturity, what's developed is I don't I don't chase it. I let people come. And so my work is my work's always been in service of other people, but there is a piece of it of I need to feel relevant too. Mm-hmm. And I think I think not chasing that is important. And so letting trust build slowly and knowing that not everybody's going to come with to you right away. I I I, uh, I had a player reach out to me during the season this year in Tampa who I've been in the organization with the, I've been in the organization for seven years. I've known this player for six years and we had never, ever had a chat like a real, can I talk to you about a few things, Ryan? And we had that chat this year and he was like, I've always been meaning to, but I always felt uncertain. And so it, it took that guy six years. Wow. You know? So, so I think one of the ways is, is you're there as a resource. I give, um, I've never asked a player for to sign something or I've, or, you know, I'll be locked out in the cold outside of an arena before I try to get, you know what I mean? Like I, I never, I never try to profit, um, mm-hmm. from, from my relationships. I, I think that, that helps, um, you know, at my first year in pro hockey, um, I, I really felt like an outsider the entire year and it was, it was really tough. And I remember the, uh, the, the next year, the equipment staff on the, uh, on the American hockey league team, they bring me a package of, uh, 
of swag, like the shirts and all this stuff. And they're like, here, uh, here, Hammy, we want you to have this. I was like, oh, my God, guys, this is so awesome. Uh, and they're like, yeah, we would have uh, given it to you last year, but we, we all just thought you spoke Klingon. And I was like, well, what? I, and, and they're like, you know, you just came, you're going to come in and you're just trying to cling on to what we were doing that you wouldn't actually help anything. And so that was really informative for me as well. It's like, you know, there's, uh, there's defenses in these places that it takes a while to penetrate. I guess the other thing when I'm trying to to form relationships is I, I do I think I have expertise in the field of sports psychology? I, well, I think I have some, yeah, but I never try to come across as an expert, as a guru. Um, my approach, which is natural, but I, I also see the strategy, and although I it didn't start this way, is one of of humility like i i am going to learn today like i'm going to learn from this relationship you have something to teach me and maybe at times that's led me not to intervene where i should have where i've stayed back but i think more often than not what having that approach has done is allowed people to feel a trust and a connection with me mm-hmm. i guess the other way is i steadfastly protect confidence so it's not, yeah, I talked to Ryan and then all those words were in the coach's mouth the next day. It's, I, I, I protect confidence. Um, so those are some ways that I think establish relationships um, mm-hmm. with people where, where you're right, like trust is the ultimate um, in the work that I do. So I'm wondering uh, of the elements, and there are many in um, mental performance that, that we work towards with an athlete or you work towards with an athlete, in essence, some of them are performance centric. In other words, how can I get better at what I want to do? How can I have success at, how can I gain more focus, et cetera, et cetera. And then there's the, call it the debrief side, the, how do I recover from a failure or something that is difficult, et cetera, or how do I deal with the uh, external stresses that are imposed upon me? What do you most enjoy in that fabric of work and what do you struggle more with or are challenged more with? Yeah. Great question. I, I think, and, and I think it starts early. I just read uh, David Grant's book about this, about, uh, or not David, Adam Grant's book about, uh, called think again, where he gets into this imposter syndrome thing. And mm. I think, I think a part of being an outsider is that I've never had, I've never had enough. It's maybe it's conviction to say, this is the way you do it. This is the mental training regimen based on the science, based on everything. This is how you do it. And, and come back to me in a week and we'll see where you're at. We'll assess where you're at. And then we're going to boom. I've, I, I almost struggle to take the risk to be prescriptive, whereas I think in other performance uh, domains, whether that be in physio or athletic therapy or strength and conditioning or osteopathy or, or what have you, it's like, this is what I want you to do, and this is how I want you to do it, and this is why you're doing it that way. And then if we need to pivot from that, we'll pivot from that, and these are the adjustments that we'll make. And I think I've struggled to do that. To, to be a leader in 
the science of getting better at coping or um, at building confidence. I where where my niche is, I think, and where I've been most effective is to be compelling around this generally is what it is, why it matters, how we think differently about it, take complex things, make it super accessible, get people excited about it, and kind of, whether it's motivational interviewing one-on-one or it's me kind of motivating around ideas and concepts um, and then building on and reinforcing and pushing and nudging, that's where... That's where I think I've been really competent as a mental performance consultant, mental performance coach, more so than in giving that that kind of direction. Mm-hmm. And I think where I where I've, I'm good at giving that detailed direction is around sleep and and around confidence, but around building mindfulness skills or building imagery skills. And the other piece, I've been more. I've been more tentative in, in in how concrete I've given those directions to to my clients in the past. And then just to 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 wrap that piece of it up, and I've now established myself in some of these organizations for six or seven years, and it's hard to pivot and reinvent. And this is the way we're doing it now. It's like, well, Ryan, why the hell weren't we doing this six years ago? Um, was, well, I didn't have the confidence to do it this way six years ago. But so there is a, an element or two of that. Hmm, interesting. Um, sort of off of that, uh, to pivot a little bit with some of your experiences, and you've been blessed to work for two um, gold medal junior teams and two uh, Stanley Cup champions. And I myself have noticed over the years working in both, call it amateur sport and pro sport, that there's a different dynamic between a a big-time tournament and the NHL playoffs and the NHL season and the grind of that and everything else. And usually you see this sort of rallying cry in an organization around what we're going to do to create success at a world juniors or, and there's a lot of energy around it and a lot of focus. What have you noticed, uh, you know, what have been your observations in working in those two environments that you noticed were completely different or, or certain tricks or, or, uh, motivational, you know, strategies worked in, in the, something like a world juniors tournament that just don't work in professional sport because of the circumstances. Quick break here, and we'll be back in a couple of seconds with our podcast guest. The reconditioning process is powerful, it's provocative, and it has become a sought-after capacity in the human performance world. ReconditioningHQ.com has released the R-Pro Series, a four-step turnkey process to integrating the worlds of therapy and performance. Four steps, one mission, to make you the reconditioning professional everyone wants to work with. The first step is R1 Foundations, and it's recently been turbocharged with the injection of applied neurology. We are extremely excited about what this new capacity is going to do to your ability to solve problems and serve your client. For more information about the R-Pro series or any one of our empowering courses, head over to reconditioninghq.com and take advantage of our free 5 hours video that takes you through our groundbreaking method of improving mobility. 
A new era of performance training is upon us. Maximize your isometric endurance, strength, and functional performance with the all-new Isofit MSK. No matter what your sport, Isofit will help best prepare your body to tolerate the forces associated with it. This not only reduces your chances of sustaining career-limiting injury, it will also enhance your ability to perform at your highest level. I really like what Brad Thorpe and Isofit are doing, and I encourage you to learn more about their mission by visiting www.isofit, that's isofit with a P-H, msk.ca, so isofitmsk.ca today. And remember to use the discount code, leave your mark, three separate words to save $500 off your Isofit MSK purchase. Matrix Fitness is about performance innovation, and I'm proud to have them with me on the Leave Your Mark podcast. They recently named my good friend and awesome performance coach, Mark Fitzgerald, as their head of performance team, which is a bold statement for anyone who wants to know they're working with the best. Matrix has all kinds of interesting lines of equipment. The Matrix Glute Trainer addresses the discomfort, inefficiency, and danger of working with loaded barbell during hip thrusts. The Matrix Glute Trainer accommodates resistant bands and weight resistance and is customizable to different body types and sizes endorsed by many and comes at a cost below others on the market the matrix s drive is a sprint performance treadmill that supports sprint training resisted sled pulls and pushes all on the frame of a standard treadmill the seven feet by three foot footprint of the S-Drive is non-motorized and is perfect for coaches who do not have access to a track or want to provide coaching in real time with the athlete. The non-motorized feature and flexibility in a simple machine keeps benefits high and investment low. For more information or a free consult, go to teamupwithmatrix.com forward slash CA today. We're back. Enjoy the rest of this podcast. Yeah. Oh, I mean, there are a few things at play here. Um, I I found professional sport to be um, more hesitant to adopt, not hesitant to adopt me. <laughs> so they've sort of brought me in and say, you know, plop me into everyone's lap and say, we have Ryan. And but the the expectations for what I'm going to do, like I think early on were. Hopefully he doesn't screw it up and hopefully like, you know, he doesn't make us worse and hopefully there'll be a person or two who's super mentally weak that he's going to help. And that'll justify his existence in the organization. And I think that was a little bit of how it started. And that's probably not fair because Julian Brisebois, who I think was instrumental in bringing me in, you know, knew the value and, and had a, had a bigger vision than what I just described. But I think when I showed up on campus, it's like, you know, and I think the other thing is that everybody on a professional sports team has gotten when, when I'm joining has gotten there without me. So these are, these are highly sought after positions for players, coaches and staff. And there's a bit of insecurity when something new happens or someone new appears of how is this person going to mess it up? Mm -hmm. Um, And that was, and I, when I first got into pro sport, I couldn't believe it because I always thought I was the helpful guy. Like I was, I'm I'm not coming in to hurt you. I'm coming in to help you. Um, But uh but th- there was that element of protectionism 
I think. And it took a lot of time to build trust. Whereas with the World Junior group, it, and, and my experience as an amateur sport, it was like much more open and much more familiar with the discipline. And not just that the discipline exists, but the discipline exists as a science. And, and you know, there's different models. And, and, and you know, when you're in that amateur sport environment, you can look over, well, what are they doing in biathlon? Or what are they doing in speed skating? Or what are they doing in with the women's soccer program? And, okay, how can we do that here? And so there's a lot of borrowing and, and understanding. So when I came in there, and, and Peter obviously was doing a lot of work with the World Junior Team in advance of me, so that he had brought some credibility to it and and they were just very very open but you're planning for a short-term event and and each year as much as hockey canada has a very well-established culture and ethos you're building that culture with a new group in a very short time frame so it's that team building it's what are our protocols around best practices we have hydration best practices we have recovery best practices activation best practices and we also have mental performance best practices, and I'm there to, to oversee them and implement them and own your pillar of high performance. And, and so it's very much a lot more responsibility, a lot more trust, and do your work and you're a part of the team. So mm-hmm. I think that's one of the things that you see. So, I mean, I would do more mindfulness sessions with the World Junior Team in a couple of weeks than I would do with Tampa Bay Lightning in a couple of years. Mm-hmm just because it, it's how institutionalized it is. Right. And so while it's a short window kind of event at a World Juniors, I am a full-time staff member there. And while I've been in Tampa for six years, other than this last COVID year where I spent six out of 12 months with the Lightning, um, I'm, I'm a part-time employee typically. I'm in and out. And so it's come in, get a glimpse, see who you normally see, make some observations, give some advice. And and that's more been what it had been like into the last couple of years. Hmm. You mentioned, uh, you know, that you said that, well, why why weren't we doing this six years ago, so to speak? And, uh, you know, I would say um, as somebody in the human performance industry, I've observed what's going on in, in, and it is touching my world in, in perform in the side of the physical and Mm. performance realm is this area of neuroscience. And it's become a bigger and bigger element of the game plan of mental preparation people and everybody in human performance, because the science has really come around in the last 10, 15 years. How has it affected your strategies, your, you know, either, informed you or maybe even challenged what you used to believe with some of the the latest research that's come out i so the majority of what i've been doing is um you know it's and i guess one of the one of the great things about doing my undergraduate degree i have a then i did a i went to kinesiology after my bachelor of arts and I did a no degree year. Then I did a master's of sport and exercise science. And then I went back and did my PhD. Um, And one of the things about being in academics that long, is not only was I familiar with the, the, the research and the, the applied research and what works and why and how it works, but I was able to develop 
you know, pretty good theoretical models and understandings and, and be exposed to different ways of thinking about the discipline. So whether that be a social cognitive approach or, or uh, a cognitive behavioral approach, which are linked, um, but whatever the approach was, I, I, so I have this, I guess I have a foundation underneath my work um, that that's very, very important to me. Um, especially when things go wrong or they're not working is like I have a foundation to come back to and to work from what's happened in recent years as as you uh, astutely observe is that there is this uh, sort of burgeoning uh, neuroscience and 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 we've developed these tools so we can study the brain much more closely and what's going on and I've found and I mentioned this earlier is I'm 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 needing to backfill my education. Um, whereas when, when, I, when new articles come out about self-confidence or so on, I have such a foundation that it doesn't rock the boat very much for me. I don't feel like I need to pivot. I'm like, oh, that's interesting or that's a nice new application, but the model still holds. But with some of the neuroscience stuff, I feel like, you know, with the accessibility of podcasts and and things like that, and and the information superhighway, there's a lot of athletes who are who are participating and are bringing things up, and I'm like, ooh, I, I need to be thinking about these things. So, all, all almost all my podcast time now is sort of more neuroscience themed, as I'm just trying to fill in those gaps, and it's made me so much better. Like, it's like my understanding of. One neurochemical like dopamine has has helped me a lot in understanding motivation and, and why people do what they do and and um, why some people are stuck in a ride and others aren't and and it's allowed me to think differently about self determination theory and all. so I, I'm I don't know like I don't want to overstate it but it's a little bit of a renaissance for me and my practices is doing this work and I think it was my work in sleep. And, and really focusing on sleep with my athletes over the last couple of years that have really exposed me to these things. And if you're to ask me to start answering questions about the neuroscience of sleep, I, I'm going to have to refer you on. But but it's it's brought that along. So I don't know that there's been a moment where I've been like, holy crap, I've been doing this wrong. But there have been moments of, man, I've been incomplete. Mm. So... That's awesome. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you know, and to, to that means, I think, you know, it's interesting to, or would be interesting to hear your viewpoints. You would mention it as, you know, some athletes are starting to read this stuff and you've probably gone in, in the last five to 10 years, especially the last five from an uninformed clientele to a much more informed clientele that's asking you questions because of something they've read, heard about, or somebody else has told them. How has that affected your the way you strategically work with with athletes and stuff that that they now have this access to information that they never had before? In some sense, yeah. I, so it's it's definitely going to depend on the athlete, and it's going to depend on the sport and the context uh, to to a large extent. Um, but, but I do have athletes who are, who challenge me and, 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 and not, not argue like they're still deferring to, um, to what they deem to be my expertise, but they're, they're bringing things up. And so it's forcing me to, to make sure that 
sometimes that I'm that I am on top of it or that I go and get on top of it so that I can respond to them in an informed way. I'm going to say that's still a small slice. Mm. And I'm going to say the majority of people need the scaffolding to be at a much lower level. Um, and, and so there is a balance from, you know, your well-read Harvard graduate um, who's, who's continuing to pursue and is, has business interests and is well-read and, you know, like is a partner with Whoop and you know what I mean? Like there yeah, are those yeah, yeah. people who are just in it and have these great understandings of things. And then there's people who are really just going to interact with, you know, like, should I think positively or negatively, mm. you know, like there's, there is that range. Um, and then some athletes that I'm working with are 14 years old. Right. So it's, there's a, it's all over the place. Um, and I guess it's, it's a cliche term, but you're meeting people where they're at mm-hmm. and, and, you know, it can sometimes be as challenging to meet them at that lower level of understanding as it is to meet them at that higher level of understanding. Mm. Indeed, the most rewarding work is at that, that upper echelon where the boundaries are being pushed. And, you know, you mentioned, you know, Patrick McGee at the beginning. I think one of the reasons that that Patrick and I love speaking to each other is we're, we're having a sophisticated conversation about psychology and, you know, when he's helping me with all my various ailments and stuff, we're probably having a slightly less sophisticated conversation, but we're still able to have a bit of a sophisticated <laughs> conversation about, you know, what's going on in the body. Um, so um, that is really rewarding work. Uh, so the, I guess the other piece is the information that's available online and, and, and science literacy. And so people do have access to a lot of information but they, in many cases, lack the skill to decipher what is, you know, what is trustworthy, what is reputable, what is repeatable, what is falsifiable. They lack that. And, um, and so sometimes there's some work to being done just to challenge preconceptions about things. Mm-hmm. Just to... to- Pivot slightly as we come closer to the end here. You know, you had mentioned, um, you know, at some point you were talking and said, well, I hadn't had children at that point, et cetera. How has, has becoming a father informed your your uh, mental performance practice? And how do you bring that to being a dad? Yeah, interesting. Um, so my children are are, are now, you know, quite a bit older than uh, when I was getting started. My son is now 15 and I have a 12 year old daughter and my son is very much athletically inclined and motivated and is, is quite sharp. Um, And, and once again, it's the same sort of blind spot in my work, but, and, and he doesn't, he doesn't like to share everything that he does mentally strategically with me because he doesn't want me to, question it or guide it or anything. Um, but I'm, I'm really good at having conversations with him about his mindset and what was he thinking during this at bat in the ball game. And, you know, I noticed this or that, what do you think was going on? And, and we have great conversations and we, I, we have great conversations around growth mindset versus a fixed mindset and what that is. And he's been to develop, able to develop this really great growth mindset and 
for an anxious kid, he takes tons of risks and, you know, like, so I've been able to prompt him along and, um, and bring a lot of my work to that, that parenting relationship. Um, but again, like I, I write him out little workout plans all the time for some band work that he should do and some stabilization work that he should do that, that I've done, but I don't write him down a mental performance plan. Like he said, like we have these conversations and, you know, we have uh, we have Headspace app, and he he'll use it sometimes, but again, not formulaic in the way that I should be with that. Um, my my daughter is very much in the motivated around the performing arts, and um, you know she's doing auditions, you know, a few times a year, and we talk about you know that environment, and we have great conversations. But she leans on my wife more mostly because my wife is home more, but also because she's a, my wife's a very gifted counselor. Um, and, and so there's that, but then my daughter's bringing home strategies about, you know, all the great feedback that she gets from directors and, um, and music teachers and dance teachers uh, that have this mental slant to it. And so it's interesting to, to have those conversations with, with them as well. Um, so like, being a parent has really informed my teaching as an academic, mm. you know, like as, as I do that cross section of intro psychology, I have these people that are at various stages of development in my house and it's been so informative and I've been able to bring my, my children's lives and my parenting blunders to the, 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 the world. Right. So, you know, athletes are interested to hear about dating and then older athletes are also interested to hear about, marital strife and parenting blunders and so on and and being a parent and being a psychologist has, has allowed me to to support athletes in different ways too and I get to tell them well this is what I do with my kid but this is what the research says I should be doing and, and this is how I screwed it up so this is how you might choose to do things differently um you know and then it's just it's just brought richness to the consulting work. You know, um, my kids have been to three world junior hockey championships and they, and, and that's brought a real richness to those experiences for me. And, mm -hmm. and, and I miss a lot of their lives. Like I said, I was with Tampa six out of 12 months and I was on the road more than seven out of 12 months. I've, I've missed a lot and given a lot to, to this career. And, there have been times I've always said, yeah, I'm a family first person, but you know, Scott, one of the things I realized is that I'm not like, like I spend a lot of time being career first. I was like, when I'm at home, I'm definitely family first, but Holy shit. Like I pursue a lot of things and I, you know, I talked about saying yes to a lot of things early on. I still do. And, um, you know, that's presented its own sort of challenges, um, you know, for me more so than I think for my family, because they've been so supportive of it, but missed a lot. And, um, and it's really having them has really brought a balance and a perspective. And, you know, I, uh, when I'm at home, I'm, I'm used to doing difficult things on the road and I make sure I, if, if I have to drive to St. because my son broke another baseball bat, <laughs> if I have to drive an hour and a half to the right sports store to go get the bat, 
I'm going to go do that, (laughs) you know, rather than just getting the bat that we can get down the road, I'm going to go get the right bat. Like it's just, you know, it's, 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 I'm all over the question. I understand, but it's hard to separate the consulting work from being a parent and being an academic. It's all, everything is so intertwined. Um, But the richness that my family's brought to my life have, Inform the metaphors that I've used, the anecdotes that have appear in my work have allowed me to relate and translate knowledge to my clients in a way that I would never have anticipated. I think David Epstein uh, said something like, if you want to write interesting books, lead an interesting life. And, <laughs> and I think if I want to, if I want to do, if I want to compel the, my clients I, I need to be drawing on things from all over the place. So like I, I put myself through the David Goggins four by four by 48 challenge, like in before the playoffs, because I just wanted to have one new perspective to draw on when I went. And so my family allows me these different perspectives too. That's awesome. Uh, that's a, a rich commentary there. I, I want to sort of wrap this up and I would be remiss not to talk about the big uh, trophy, but I, um, I know Julian Breezebois quite well from having worked with him at the Hab. So Julian invited me down to go and at his Stanley cup party a few weeks ago, and I'm actually going to have him on the podcast in a few weeks from now, but I'm just curious, you know, what was, what was that experience for you? Um, you know, how, how do you, how do you share that, uh, the feeling of winning two Stanley Cups in a row? Well, the idea of, of winning the Stanley Cup, and you know, I didn't win the Stanley Cup. I was a part of a team that won the Stanley Cup. Absolutely. Um, you know, there's, I think when I started to work in professional hockey, which was, I, I never, I, all, I always dreamt of working in the National Hockey League. I didn't believe it would ever come true necessarily, but I just kept trying to do good work and it, and it worked out. Um, once I got established and felt like, okay, I, I'm doing this and, and I have some footing here, then, I, then it became about winning. And that is such a measuring stick. And the Stanley Cup has always been folklore in my life, but when I started to work in hockey, it was the folklore was much more next door, you know, and it got to this point where whenever I heard about the Stanley cup, I actually started to have a reaction to it. Like, like what if we never win? Like, what if, what if I'm a part of this and and these people I'm working with never win? Or what if I never have a chance to win? And it's such a long shot to win. And yes, I'm on a great team, a part of a, terrific organization working with brilliant people like Julian and John Cooper and, and so many other people in the organization. But what if it doesn't ever work out? And I, so I would see the Stanley cup uh, on TV and I would have like this weird reaction of, yeah, it's still a cool trophy. And wow, those guys are so excited when they won it, but it, it felt like this weird hollow thing. Um, and it, that was a new thing because the Stanley Cup was just the coolest trophy in sport. And then, but then you're competing for it. Um, and then to go through all we went through from being swept by Columbus and nobody, after we lost to, after we won the president's trophy and got swept by Columbus, nobody said, oh man, they got their nutrition planning all wrong. 
Like, it was like, what the hell happened? Like, it was a mental thing, right? Or it was a coaching <laughs> thing. Like, it wasn't, oh, geez, uh, you know, they, they ate the wrong things for breakfast. That wasn't the commentary. And so I was a part of what was deemed to be an epic collapse or one of the greatest chokes in history. And then I've also been a part of the worst ever performance on home ice for a world junior team a few years ago in Vancouver. And so you start those things. Now, Bob McKenzie's talking about your work on TV. Right? And it's like, you know, he, of course, he doesn't know who the heck you are, but he's certainly commenting on, on something you should have had influence over. And, and so it was like, man, maybe I'm not cut out for this, or maybe I'm not good enough, or maybe there should be somebody else here. And so then to go into a bubble and to go through all of that and to be, to my knowledge, I was the only mental performance person in the in that bubble, and and there could have been. I know that there were I other amazing colleagues doing great work virtually, but but I was in it, and they chose to bring me to be in it, and so I was excited to, like, man, like okay, I get a I have a chance to to influence this, and then to go all the way through that to the very end, and to, it actually happened, and we won there was such a feeling of elation and satisfaction and relief and pride and brotherhood. Like, and I had been a part of winning teams before in different sports um, and in hockey, but there was just no coming off of the high for like, (laughs) you know, it wasn't like, Oh my God, this is so amazing. And, and now, wow, I'm proud of myself. It was so high for so long because there was so much wrapped up in it, mm. I think. Um, and then to do it again, there was no safety blanket for us. We, we took the safety blanket away from the players of, hey, we didn't just win it once and now we're comfortable. Like, we're, like, we're, we're going for this thing again. And that meant me too. And then to see that through, and again, I was in the bubble with the first time, and then this time, last time, we weren't bubbled, but I couldn't go home. So I was on the road for, you know, whatever it was, 60-plus days um, pursuing it this time, and it was such a relief. And, um, and, and the loneliness this time really challenged my mental health. And so getting through it and having success you know, it just was an added meaning to the sacrifice, I think. Mm. But to wrap it all up is I got to have the Stanley Cup. I got to have it here in Fredericton for eight hours. And when you're trying to figure out, you know, what's the spirit of the day, you know, and I and I let that guide, you know, the organization of the day. And, and Patrick and I have a mutual friend called Dave Alexander, who's the goalie coach in St. Louis, who's a wonderful guy. And I spoke to Dave a lot when I was planning my event. Um, and, and he gave me some of that advice. And I said, well, what do I want the spirit of the day to be? And I wanted it to be gratitude. And I wanted to just show my appreciation for people who have touched this journey in, in some way, whether that's my neighbor who snowblows my driveway when I'm away. And so my wife can get out and get to work easily in the morning, whether that's the person who sends the text after we lose versus after we win, um, or whether it's, I even invited somebody who 
I had only met for maybe 20 minutes in my life, um, who gave me a out of the blue phone call to pick my brain during the bubble. And it brought clarity to my work. So I invited, I just invited people, a lot of people <laughs> uh, who had touched my journey in some way to just express that gratitude. So like with the Stanley Cup handlers, were, when they followed my day, none they weren't going to say this was the coolest thing that's ever been done with the cup, or I'd never seen that done with the cup before, or that was the most unique thing. But I think they felt gratitude and appreciation. Um, and I was able to express that to friends and colleagues and my university and, uh, and so on. So, I mean, just right behind me here on my table, the Stanley cup sat here in my office for a little while. Um, and I can't believe that that actually happened. <laughs> like, <laughs> so it's, uh, it's a bit like a fairy tale, you know, that continues. That's awesome. Yeah. Well, I've taken uh, five more minutes than I'm supposed to take with you today, and I appreciate your hour of uh, of your life. Uh, it's been a great share, great, uh, great, and very informative. And uh, thanks for taking the time today. Thanks uh, for being here. Oh, thanks so much. And I'm sorry the conversation was so one sided. <laughs> so, I'm used to being on the other side of this. Stop. That's no. That's normal. That's normal. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> Anyway, when I get my podcast going, I'll make sure I give you a call and I'll return the favor. Awesome. Appreciate your time. Thanks for taking the time today. Thanks so much. Thanks for joining us today on Leave Your Mark. I hope we've left a mark on you today. And we wish only that you pay it forward by sharing this story, taking the time to rate and comment on this podcast. Please follow us at Twitter at Built by Scott and Instagram at King O'Pain and become a member of this community at Scott G. Livingston on Facebook. Have a great day. Music by Cedric de Saint-Rome.